He's hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. So, what was it? Last week, the week before, we had Bob Chiarelli claiming that he didn't say peeing all over the map. Now we have another liberal at Queen's Park saying, well, I never said what I said. No, I didn't say that. I said something different. What am I talking about now? I'm talking about Glenn Murray, the radical leftist environment minister who was saying we've got to get off of natural gas. We want to move Ontarians out of using natural gas to heat their homes. But it turns out that's more than 70% of us in this province. And it is a clean and efficient way to heat our homes. But Murray wants us to get off of all fossil fuels. Remember, we talked about his attempt to say, let's move to electric cars. By 2024, he wants 1.7 million electric cars in our driveways. Essentially, the overwhelming majority of new car purchases between now and 2024 would have to be vehicles not made in Ontario, which would put a serious dent in our auto industry. But he doesn't care because he's a radical environmentalist, because he is about the cause. He's not about what's good for you. He's not about what's good for Ontario. He's about what's good for his downtown Toronto elitist friends. They can sit around and feel good about themselves. So Glenn Murray is now claiming that he, he, he didn't say we're going to get off of natural gas. He's claiming, no, no, no. But here's the funny thing. I mean, he says now natural gas will continue to play a critical role in the energy mix in Ontario in the future and beyond that you'll have to wait and see the details. But no, we're not banning natural gas or taking it away from people. Oh, weasel words. Not going to ban it. Not going to take it away from people. But he wants us all off of it, because that's what he said last week. So we are working with Enbridge, with Union Gas, with the sector, the geothermal sector, to improve the efficiency and where we have better and more affordable technologies for Ontarios, switch those out. Home heating in the future is going to come to have to come from sources other than natural gas. In Toronto, where I live, my building and others in my neighbourhood don't need to be running on natural gas. Hmm. We're going to switch it out. We're working with them. We're going to switch it out. And in the future, it will have to come from something else. So he didn't say ban it, but he's saying we're going to change it. Now, the energy industry and the auto industry are getting really worried about this $7 billion plan. This $7 billion pie-in-the-sky plan to completely change our economy, change our future, change how we operate. They're warning that it's going to drive up home heating costs by $3,000 per homeowner per year. $3,000. And you thought your electricity hike was high. 
Now, there's some pushback on this. There's pushback, as I said, from the energy sector, from the auto sector. But do you think the liberals care? They brought in the Green Energy Act that brought us the wind and the solar against opposition from the people, against opposition from the local communities that they're putting these windmills up in. That opposition was there 10 years ago when they started. It's there today. The opposition from consumers saying my bills are too high is still there. They don't care. And apparently, a good chunk of the province will continue electing them no matter what they do. So why wouldn't they push through with their radical agenda? Even though, as I said last week, and now the, energy, the auto industry is coming out, this will hurt the province. The environmentalists say, by the way, it doesn't go far enough. The environmentalists want more, including a central planning authority that will disperse the money raised by the carbon tax they're going to bring in. Are you ready to pay $3,000 more? Are you ready to say you will give up a big chunk of your income for a new heating source for the good of the planet? To make Glenn Murray feel better? To make Kathleen Wynne feel better? Oh, and by the way, part of the reason that this might cost that much is, yeah, they want us to go to electric heat. You know what that's going to mean? We will need, we will need more windmills because they're not going to build another nuke plant. I drove by the Darlington plant on the weekend. It's big and ugly. But it looks nice compared to the windmill farms that are ravaging the landscape of eastern Ontario, the entire province. I've told you before about the blight that is now Wolf Island in Kingston. It used to be beautiful standing on the, the lakeshore in Kingston, looking out. You see Wolf Island. Now you just see bird choppers. That's all. The Joe uh, Vaccaro, chief executive officer of the Ontario Home Builders Association, said, it will be a challenge to el- eliminate natural gas, but much will depend on how much help the government provides. Do I believe it's possible? Mr. Vaccaro said, with enough government support and incentives, it's possible. Do I believe it's likely? I think it's going to be a challenge considering the massive natural gas infrastructure already in place. From the Globe and Mail, senior auto industry executives and analysts said the province's electric vehicle targets will be impossible to meet. Getting to 12% by 2025 would mean sales of more than 100,000 electric vehicles annually assuming overall sales reach 900,000 vehicles by 2025. The province is still proposing to meet its 2025 carbon reduction targets in part by forcing Ontarians to pay themselves subsidies to buy electric vehicles that won't actually exist, said Flavio Volpe, president of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association of Canada. Hear that? The government will force us to pay ourselves subsidies to buy electric vehicles that don't actually exist and in the process, kill off the jobs at the parts manufacturers that Mr. Volpe represents. Kill off the jobs at the assembly plants that dot the landscape of much of the province. These are the radicals we're dealing with. I think it's time that we we set them on their way. But you know what? I think we need to hear from Patrick Brown on this because we have not heard enough. We've got uh, Kelly Leach coming up later on in the program to talk about her bid for the federal conservative leadership. 
And we'll also hear from Simon Kent, editor at Breitbart London, about the move to to get Britain out of Europe. We'll check in on some other stories, but I think we've got to chase down Patrick Brown. I think we've got to find out what he is going to do to stop this. Because it is incumbent upon him, if he wants to show his chops as a leader, that he comes out strongly against this. He can't do what he did on carbon pricing and play on the Liberals' field. This will bankrupt the entire province, it will kill off industry, and it will make each of us so much poorer. Also, that Kathleen Wynne and Glenn Murray can pat themselves on the back and talk about what great stewards of the environment they are, what wonderful, wonderful people they are. I don't know about you, but I'm fit to be tied over this plan, and it hasn't even come out yet. All we keep getting are drips and drabs, and each drip sounds worse than the last. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Now watch me whip. Now watch me nay nay. If you have children of a certain age, you know this annoying song. Why am I playing it here? Why am I annoying you and myself? Because the whip of the Liberal Party, Orleans Liberal MP Andrew Leslie... He needs a little help with his whipping and his nay-nay, doesn't he? Have you heard about this story? The Liberals almost lost a vote on their own bill. On their own bill. Why? Because the NDP pushed for a vote early and 45 Liberal MPs weren't... They weren't at work. They couldn't be found. Here's how votes work in the House of Commons. And by the way, Brian Lilly again. uh, Lowell is normally here at this time. He's off sunning his buns somewhere. So he's not with us today. He'll be back soon. Uh, And and Rob, yep, Rob will be back at the end of the month. But here with me. Uh, So this is how votes go down in the House of Commons. Uh, Someone, either it's a scheduled vote or someone will move for a vote. They ask, is there support for a vote? Yay, nay. Then they call in the members. And depending on the vote, it's anywhere between five and I've seen, you know, calls as long as 45 minutes so that MPs can get from their scattered offices all around the parliamentary district into the House of Commons and in their seats for a vote. Because once voting starts, not only do you have to be through the doors, you have to be in your seat. If you are not sitting in your seat when they start calling the roll, you don't get to actually cast a vote. Well, the Liberals have this bill on Air Canada, and it's uh, where the maintenance work for Air Canada has to be done, all of that. It's not all that exciting, except to new Democrats from Quebec. So they they moved to uh, have a vote on it, and had the NDP won, it would have shut everything down. It would have killed the bill. In the end, it was a tie, 139 to 139. Stephen Harper was able to get to his seat to vote. The former prime minister, quite often you don't see former prime ministers show up 
for much of anything. I remember Paul Martin traipsing all around Africa after he got his butt handed to him by Harper. He didn't make appearances at the House of Commons. And when reporters asked him why, he said, well, my constituents in La Salamard are very concerned about poverty in Africa. No, they're concerned about poverty where they live because he represented a poor district. But Stephen Harper, he shows up to work. He actually shows up at the office. He shows up in the House of Commons. He showed up to vote. Meanwhile, the Liberals were scrambling, and Andrew Leslie apparently needs some help on counting. Because it's the Whip's job to know when there can be votes, when there will be votes. It's the Whip's job to count the votes and know that they have them. And if they don't, to find a procedural trick to move things along so that they don't. So in the end, it was up to the Speaker. It was up to the Speaker to save the government's bacon. That doesn't happen very often. That is an embarrassment to the Liberal government. It's an embarrassment to Andrew Leslie. I thought he should get the role of and the job of being defense minister when he came in. I was very surprised he didn't. But apparently he has trouble looking after the troops in the Liberal Party. We thought he was a big, strong general. He could look after the troops in Afghanistan. But he can't look after, he can't herd the cats that are the Liberal caucus. Let's play a little bit of Whip Whip Nene again, shall we, Dean? This is for you, Andrew Leslie. This is for you. Now watch me, Nene. Okay. Now watch me, Whip Whip. Watch me, Nene. Why me do it? Now watch me, Whip. Now watch me, Nene. Okay. Now watch me, Whip Whip. Watch me, Nene. Why me do it? Now watch me, Whip. Now watch me, Nene. All right. Coming up shortly, we'll speak to Rick Smith of the Broadband Institute. Later on in the program, Kelly Leach will join us about her bid to be conservative leader, and we are going to try and track down Patrick Brown to see what's going on. We'll open up the phone lines just after we talk to Rick, so if you've got thoughts on this new green energy plan in Ontario, getting rid of natural gas, 521-TALK, 521-8255. We'll open up the phone lines shortly. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. the news with brian Lilly. join the resistance on facebook and twitter at cfra ottawa kelly leach and her office calling me in the break to uh to say we're going to move things around it'll be eleven thirty. so if you wanted to hear kelly leach's interview on why she's running to be leader of the conservative party eleven thirty, not 12 30 we'll bring that to you uh just as we spoke to michael chon and maxine bernier yesterday i want to bring on a man who is absolutely must be supporting maxine bernier and his libertarian causes uh, socialist extraordinaire rick smith with the broadband institute Hello, you, hello, Brian. I, I, I love the way every every week you invent, you concoct a new title for me. <laughs> Socialist extraordinary, isn't that a good one? What, what's your that's, official? That's, that is actually on my. That, that is what, what's on my business card. <laughs> what is your official? It's executive director of the Broadband Institute, of right? The Broadband Institute. That is correct. Uh, is, aren't my titles? For, I mean, I always mention broadband, but aren't my titles like Socialist Extraordinaire or Communist in Chief? Aren't they more interesting? Much better. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to fix that. Thank you. Yeah. 
Uh, Rick, you um, you are a supporter of changing the voting system. We've talked about that. We've debated that. You think that yeah. first past the post has to go. But let me ask you, the NDP is not happy. A lot of people on the left are not happy about the way the liberals are going about it. When we spoke last, uh, they hadn't really announced how they were going to do everything. Now we've got all the details, including that they're stacking the committee with six liberals and well, it doesn't matter what the uh, doesn't matter what the committee says. It's actually going to be cabinet makes the decision, and consultation could include just Twitter. If you listen mm-hmm. to Maria Monson, yeah. Well, let me let me start off saying something nice about the government's uh, commitment, um, which is that uh, they're right that, that that the last federal election should be the last election uh, conducted under our current crummy first past the post system. You know, any right thinking Democrat out there. Uh, you know, new Democrat, liberal, conservative should welcome the idea of moving to a new electoral system uh, that better reflects the the will of Canadians uh, well, across, across 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 the board. But, but r- ranked the ballot would uh, not reflect the will of the people. Oh, I, t- I totally agree with that. So here's here's the problem with with what happened last week. Uh, the Liberals uh, have said they want to move to this new system, but yet they're conducting the consultations under the worst of the old system. So they've created this 10-person committee uh, stacked with six liberals. Uh, the Bloc Québécois and the Greens are at the table, but they don't have a vote. Uh, and uh, and the, the time period for all of this is quite compressed. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that, that the liberals think better of what they've done here and, uh, and uh, you know, rejig this committee to better reflect <laughs> the new way of doing things that they that they say they're interested <laughs> I don't, in. I don't know if you heard her comments, but um, Minister Monsef, uh, who is doing a horrible job of selling the government's position, she was asked in the news conference, well, you say that we shouldn't be using the current system, so why do you have six out of ten members? Why isn't it more reflective of the percentage of the popular vote in the last election? Yeah. And she actually said, well, this is the current system, and so we get to have six members. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, I, here's, here's, just, here's a, just to state the obvious here, that, that even though the government has a majority in the House of Commons, there is no way uh, at the end of this process that the government can, can ram through a new electoral system Unless it has the support, I would say, at a minimum, of one other major party in the House of Commons. Because otherwise, it it will stand accused of jury-rigging a new system that only benefits the Liberal Party of Canada. And and that kind of cynicism is exactly what uh, what Justin Trudeau threw at. That allegation of cynicism is exactly what Justin Trudeau threw at Stephen Harper in the last election. So, you know, the Liberals need the support of at least one or two or three other political parties here. So they might as well give up the majority in that committee because it's not like they can ram through uh, their predetermined conclusion and get away with it. Would the I, I know you don't speak for the NDP, but uh, you are fellow travelers. Would Do you think the NDP would support ranked ballot under any circumstances? You know, I, I, I'm not, I don't have a crystal ball, but I will say that, uh, that, that the Broadbent Institute did uh, a very big study on this uh, earlier in the year. And it's very clear that the only party that ranked ballot benefits is the Liberal Party of Canada. The Conservative Party gets annihilated under ranked ballot. Uh, the NDP 
uh, doesn't do well. The, green, the Greens in the Bloc are basically locked out under ranked ballot. Uh, and so, so that, it's, it's, I, I think that is just a non-starter. Now, rank, ranked ballot, of course, is not, a, is not a, a, an electoral system in and of itself. It's just a way of counting votes. So uh, using a ranked ballot uh, system of counting within a proportional voting system uh, that might make some sense, and a lot of countries in Europe do that. So I think there's, I think there's room for compromise here between uh, some of the options on the table. Mary Amonti, I know that you, I don't believe anyway that you're a supporter of going to a referendum. I do. I think that you need not only the support of political parties, but you need the support of the people because our voting system is not owned by the parties. Our voting system isn't even owned by parliament. Our voting system is owned by the people. And I think that we need to have a say. Uh, you and I could disagree on that, and I'm sure we could have a rational discussion, each putting forward our respective views. But Monsif is just, and this is another example where you know Trudeau's cabinet is failing him. Uh, last week, she seriously put forward the popularity of a Twitter hashtag on electoral reform as a reason that we don't need to have a referendum, that we can consult in other ways. And then yesterday it was, we can't have a vote on changing how we vote because some people don't vote. Do either yeah. of those, are, are either of those valid reasons in, in your mind not to have a referendum? Well, I, here's my simple-minded conclusion on this. In the last election, well over 60% of Canadians voted for political parties uh, that had explicit in their platforms uh, uh, the idea of moving away from the current voting system. The, the but, liberals, but they did they, not say what they would move to. Well, that's fine. And so that's what this committee is going to, uh, going to work on over the, next, over the next few months. But my point here is that this isn't a new idea. It was a live issue in the last election. And, uh, and I think, you know, it's fair to say the Liberals got elected with a platform to move away from the current voting system. And, and a proportional voting system was explicit in the NDP, the Bloc, and the Green platforms. So, you know, I, I think uh, I don't think a referendum is necessary. I do think that uh, consulting Canadians and talking to Canadians and doing better than this uh, harebrained uh, 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 committee that the government's put together, uh, something better than well, that is warranted. But I, I mean, you know, uh, Rick, uh, speaking with Rick Smith, the executive director of the Broadband Institute. There, I gave your official title with no, no, no flourishment. Uh, <laughs> The You know as well as I do that House of Commons committees can be a sham, that they, you know, well, we go across the country and we consult widely. And then yeah. you look at who they're consulting, and they're consulting the same special interest groups as they do every time. Sometimes they consult the same group in multiple cities as they do their cross-country tour. And then the, whoever the government of the day is, or I, I remember even – in the minority days, the opposition would do this because they had the majority on committees. Uh, you know, well, we consulted and, and, and look, this is what we came up with. No, you, you found the witnesses you wanted to tell you what you wanted to hear to arrive at your foregone conclusion. Well, uh, of, yes. So I, I agree that the government shouldn't just consult the usual suspects in this. There needs to be a robust uh, national widespread uh, uh, discussion and debate in this. And I'm very confident that what's going to emerge from that is a is a consensus that a proportional representation system is what is best for Canadians. It elects more women. 
It elects a more diverse legislature, and it allows people across the political spectrum, conservative, uh, uh, New Democrat, liberal, green, to better see the expression of their vote in the legislature. So well, at the moment, you, you, you and I and disagree on that because I, I think it it turns what is supposed to be a local election decided by local people into a giant national contest because proportionality is done on a national basis, not on a local basis. And well, we elect you, local you MPs. That's right. And you can have local and every uh, system of proportional representation on offer in Canada, what the Law Commission of Canada recommended 10 years ago, what every one of the dozen commissions in Canada that's looked at this has, has concluded is that you can have local representation in a proportional system. So, uh, but I would agree with you that having a, there's nothing to be afraid of here on the part of the government. Uh, it's uh, not not to be afraid of. It's that we have the best system going. Why change it just because it's 2016? Oh, our system came to us from the 19th century, says Minister Monsif. Well, you know, the Magna Carta is from 1215, and I, I well, think it's a pretty been, darned been, important document. Yeah, but that's been fairly extensively modified, Brian. It's, and uh, Actually, I think that exactly makes my point. You know, our, our voting system was uh, invented at a time when women didn't have the right to vote, when poor people didn't have the right to vote, when uh, you know many non-white people didn't have the right to vote, and it's time to get with the program. And, and uh, very few countries in the world still use the out, outdated uh, election system that we have. All right. There you have it. We'll find out what the people say. Rick, thanks for the time. Thank you. Have Rick, a good day. Rick Smith, Socialist Extraordinary Executive Director at the Broadband Institute. There, I had my fun. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Government's excuses for not having a referendum, getting more feeble, would love to hear what you have to say. But also, want to hear what you have to say about Kathleen Wynne's crazy new plan. 521-TALK, 521-8255. I'm Brian Lilly. Back in moments. He's hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Central planning. Fundamental transformation. These are the hallmarks of the good old-fashioned left, aren't they? People that want to control everything, control your life, not give you a say. Hey, it, it applies to the, the push for electoral reform that Justin Trudeau's putting through. Why let the people have a say in changing how the people elect their representatives? No, no. Politicians can decide that. Politicians can design the system. I think not. But it also applies, the central planning control aspect also applies to the wind government's push to get us off of natural gas, to get us into electric cars, to spend billions, to charge us billions, to tax us more due so that we can give ourselves subsidies to buy the right kinds of things. It's insanity. Where do you stand? 521-TALK, 521-8255. Mireille in Vanya, you're on Beyond the News. Mireille, um, I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, we have an oil furnace working very well, and of course, uh, government said uh, that it would be wise to go electric heating, 
and of course, uh, our being stupid listened to them. So in the early 90s, out with the oil furnace and the oil tank. Okay, so you had an oil furnace that was working well. Very well. And you transferred it out. And we changed to electric heating. That's in the 90s. Mm-hmm. That year we froze in our home. We well, were f- be- because it was too expensive? Not, no, it was too cold. It didn't work as well. And no. For- I mean, forced I, I air heating is the best. What, I beg your pardon? For, forced air heating, whether it's oil or natural gas, forced air heating is the most comfortable. Unless that's right. you know, a, fi- is a fire is really the best. But. That's right. <laughs> but, but oil heating, we've never had any problems. So anyhow, so we kept the furnace for one year only, electric uh, furnace. And the following year, we went back to oil furnace. So we had to buy a new furnace and a new oil tank. Oh, wow. Now, so- the high price of electricity now... And having the experience of freezing with electricity, they will not sell me on this method of heating. I think they should leave us alone and quit dictating to us what is best for us. All homes are not built, uh, are built different. And I believe that uh, not all homes uh, would be warm enough with electric heating. I uh, I tend to agree. I yeah. mean, it, it has its advantages for if you if you have a home where you don't go in some rooms very often, you can just turn down the thermostat in that room and not worry about heating it when it's not there. But there's ways to do that with but with we, natural gas or yeah. oil. But we had our our heating, you know, like very well distributed with oil, and there's no reason to go electric. Now, natural gas. Well, I'm afraid of it. I don't want natural gas because. In the 50s, I lived two blocks down where the Jackson building blew up. Okay, well, it, uh, we should have, it should be uh, our choice. That's right. Muriel, that's what it's should happen. It's dictating to us. It's our choice. Thanks for the call. You're welcome. Bye Let's now. go to Gary in Carlingwood. Gary, you're on Beyond the News. Good morning, Brian. Good morning. It's not really a good morning, but I have to say it. You know, good morning. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say the loonies have taken over the asylum. Oh, absolutely they have. They have, and we have two wonderful dictators in the Fed and the Provincial, and I won't say any names, but they're both dictators as far as I'm concerned. And this Glenn Murray, he's another one off his rocker. And I just would like to say I, I sent a check for that keep the sign up for win, fire, win. Oh, good. I, yeah, I sent you 200 bucks just, and that's the truth. The check's there. So... I'm asking everybody else, if you can spare 10 bucks, please keep the sign up to annoy her, and you're going to feel good every day knowing that <laughs> you're doing that. Sometimes that's all it takes to make me happy, is to know that I'm annoying the right people. Right that's, people. That's the way I feel. And this stuff with awe, I saw it this morning, it just annoyed me so much. I, I'm lost for words. I can't swear. I'm just like you guys. It's got The lunacy's got to stop. Well, so, uh, we will... Uh, We'll be doing some uh, some more activism in the next little while. Yes. Trying to figure out what we can do to keep pressure up, how to keep pressure up. That billboard you mentioned? Yes. It caught Kathleen Wynne's eye. I don't know if you heard, but within a day or so of that going up, there was um, a letter being drafted by Elections Ontario. Yes, you sent me the flyer on that. A little threatening to us yep. about... Uh, well, why are you uh, why are you doing this? Well, none of your business. But I'm betting that came from Premier Wynne being upset that there was a billboard outside. So she feels the heat that way. But we've got to make sure 
that we're contacting our politicians and contacting them in the right way. So we're trying to design something that on both electoral reform and this energy madness, that we're able to help you contact the right people in the right way. Make it easy so that it's, you know, just seamless. People don't have to to dig up so-and-so's contact information. Mm -hmm. We'll try and make it easy. Watch for that coming in the uh, the next little while. Thanks, Gary. Okay, thank you. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. What are your thoughts on these changes to the the energy system in Ontario after trying to get us all on natural gas? More than 70% of us are on natural gas. Well, now they want us off of that, all for the environment. That and Kelly Leach coming up at 1130. Be Lil, Beyond the News. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Just responding to a listener, both of the radio show and the podcast, wondering what uh, some of the... What's that song? I like that song. I think it was uh, Superhero by Jane's Addiction, which, of course, is the theme song for the, the hit TV show, I guess the cult TV show, Entourage. If you're not listening to the show every day, you want to catch something, make sure you follow me on social media, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly, the Twitter machine as well. I'm on there. And we post the podcast up later in the day. Yesterday, in fact, posted on on SoundCloud. So if you subscribe to my podcast in either Google Play or iTunes, the podcast app on your phone or tablet, if you subscribe to my podcast, you'll get all of these. But I put up just the interview with Michael Chong and just the interview with Maxine Bernier. We'll do that with Kelly Leach as well. She comes up at, at uh, 11.30, so about half an hour from now. Half an hour from now, we will get in touch with um, Patrick Brown we're trying to get in touch with, but we're being told not available. So we'll see if somebody else can come on. Okay. Thanks for that, Dean. We will uh, we will check into that, trying to get someone from the conservatives, the PCs, to explain what they are doing, what's their stance on this insanity. We already know that Patrick Brown's on board with the carbon tax. They better figure out the right answer on this one. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. James calling in about Wynn's lack of promises. What do you mean? Um, uh, is this Brian? Yep. Okay, Brian, sorry. Uh, I'm a new caller type thing, um, and I'm a staunch liberal, and I am no longer a staunch liberal. Uh, in Ontario, and uh, it also goes all the way to the uh, federal government as well. What uh, uh, what's I, what's changing your mind? Um, it's the total lack of transparency on how um, these these elected officials feel that their dreams are are the voters' dreams when that their their dreams were not answered when they when we voted. Uh, they, they're just they're just muddying the waters and doing what they always do, and um, I don't see the difference between Dalton McGinty and 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 Win. And my question to you is, I'm I'm not that smart a man, but I I keep on hearing what the conservatives are going to do or whatever. But I I, I wanted to ask you a question: it, the majority in the uh, in the provincial government. Mm-hmm. Uh, is ha, 
means that they can push through anything almost, right? Yep, they can push through what they want. Why Why do the intellectual people in this country that are like me, liberals, at the same time conservatives, instead of partisanship, be bipartisan and try to find where we can get people to turn to independent you know, now, I, I would we, like I, if, I would actually like a lot more independent elected representatives, James. And it's it's part of why I oppose all of these changes to our voting system at the federal level, because it gives more power to the parties. I want I want people to stand up sometime. I, I would love for a liberal MP in Ontario and a liberal MPP in Ontario and Kathleen Wynne's government to stand up and say, uh, no, I represent an area with an automaker. Or I, I represent enough. people with hydro bills they can't pay. And exactly. this plan's crazy. We need more of that. Instead, they're elected and they all just vote like sheep. And we've got, uh, to, we've got I, to break that. And I realize that. But I, somehow I always think that the target is too big. We're, we're trying to hit, we're trying to use a cannon fog to, to hit a pen when it would be, you know, like strategy wise. There are a lot of liberal writings that where the liberal uh, MPP is is extremely upset. I mean, you hear it all the time. Um, there are ones that are switching over, but I don't think that the insurmountable number of getting um, some of these people to go to independent and say enough is enough. It doesn't mean that they're not liberal anymore. It's it's that liberal conservative NDP. You know, we want our country to survive and we want our province to prosper. And, and, and this is not the way to do it with this plan. No, right. no, this plan doesn't even have any sense to it. Thanks for but the question. Oh, go, go ahead. Finish quick. Yeah, I, I'm just saying that, you know, organizing, OK, and trying to find those writings where there's a weakness and then work on them. It would, I think it would cause wind to be so concentrating on them, making all sorts of promises to their writing, that it would blow their transparency out the window because if she doesn't do that, she's going to lose the floor. Well, I, I, I'm hoping that, uh, like I said, we're developing some activism. Thanks for the call. We're developing some activism tools, trying to figure out how we can put pressure. And I think stopping this wind plan has to be part of it. Uh, it's not a partisan thing. It's not saying put in the conservatives, put in the NDP, get rid of liberals. No, I, we can't. Not until the next, ele- next election. But our elected officials have to hear from us that subsidizing all these various energy things to move us into electric cars, to move us off of natural gas, to spend billions we don't have on plants that won't work, that's not the way to go. Did you know that Ontario was already... 7% below our 1990 carbon emission levels. The province has grown by millions of people. The economy has grown tremendously. But we're actually below 1990 levels. That was the promise of Kyoto, and we were told if we did that, we'd be fine. And yet, they just want to move us off of carbon completely due to their new religion. That will hurt us. Tim is calling from Renfrew. Tim, you're on Beyond the News. Uh, hi, Brian. Um, one of the things that nobody seems to... Uh, take into consideration with this everybody's going to change your electricity is the building codes are completely different for a house that's built with 
uh, gas furnace or an oil furnace versus an electric furnace. All the R values are doubled in an electric furnace house. So, like, what are people going to do? Start ripping their walls out and doubling the insulation to put an electric furnace in? And according to the liberals, seventy-six percent of us are on uh, some kind of natural gas. Mm-hmm. How's it going to work? It's it just—it physically cannot. And anybody that's a builder knows this. You like. If you build a house and you're putting in an electric furnace, instead of two-by-four walls, you need two-by-eight walls because your R-value, you've got double the amount of insulation in the walls and the it, attic. Okay, why, why do you need that, Tim? Is it because, because electric heat doesn't perform as well as natural gas? Exactly, and, and that, as well as geo. Geothermal, same deal. You just can't rip out a gas furnace and throw one of them in and... That's why that lady said when they took the oil furnace out, they froze with an electric. Uh-huh. They guarantee it. I, I, like I say, I've done a few of these projects for people that want to put windmills out in, in bars, and, and they say they want electric furnaces. And it, it, it adds like fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 onto a house. And apparently it'll be $3,000 a year for our bills. Well, granted, these guys were putting in windmills in their backyards and stuff. Anyways, I... Like I say, I was just doing the furnace for them. I'm yeah. not involved in that part of it, but but no, they're they're, they're saying if they go through with this plan, our our, our energy bills will go up three thousand dollars per year on average. Now, on average is I I think about the equivalent of a two bedroom apartment. If you have a townhouse or a larger house, you're going to be paying a lot more than three thousand dollars. And if you're up the valley, if you're in the country, you, you're going to be paying even more. Yeah, it's like I say, it, it just can't work. It's, it's, it's well, impossible. It's a dream. It, calling something impossible apparently is a challenge for Glenn Murray because he likes the impossible and he likes to force his agenda on us. So I think it's coming either way. Thanks, Tim. Oh, one more thing, yeah, Brian. Go ahead. Whatever happened to acid rain? Well, uh, apparently we signed a treaty and that made it go away. Okay, because that was the big thing when I was in high school. We did projects on acid rain, and we're dumping limestone in right. lakes. And I think uh, I think changing uh, uh, several things, including manufacturing, but coal as well. I think that did have an impact. But um, you know, look, I, I just point to the experts like the UN. We have not had warming since 1998. I keep saying it because the propagandists keep putting out their stuff. I point to Michael Mann, who developed the hockey stick graph, who came out and said, yeah, it didn't warm like our computer model said it would. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. Thanks, Tim. Thanks. Let's go to Anne in Ottawa. Anne, you're on Beyond the News. You know, you know, Brian, I, I know I ranted yesterday about that gas furnace thing. That's absolutely insane. If Martians were to come here and see how the energy grid is being managed in Ontario, they would say, are you people out of your minds? I mean, this is crazy. And, you know, the biggest scam about all of this is that, that they pretend that all of this is being done to make it a better planet and all that stuff. It's not doing a darn thing. And like you said, the air is better now than it was 30 years ago. So us doing in all of this, even if all of us stopped driving cars, there were no trains, no planes or anything. It wouldn't make a damn bit of difference globally at all because you've still got China and India and, and the United States with, with like coal plants all over the place coming out of their yin-yang. But to punish us like this and tell us it's to make the planet better, is it, it, it's just going to ruin the economy. And I really 
I mean, that guy was talking about, you know, independence and all this mm-hmm. stuff. But the problem is there are 2 million people, probably, if you look at, like, husbands and wives and everything like that, who get a paycheck from that provincial government. That's who supports them. Almost every damn teacher in this province votes liberal. I mean, I, I, re- I remember one time. I, but I, I but it doesn't always have to be that way, Anne. I well, mean, I, I, don't, but... I don't. Hold on. I don't know how many people told me that conservatives federally could never win in Ottawa because uh, they were, you know, against the civil service and everybody is either working for the federal government or married to somebody that is, so they'll never win. And yet for 10 years, they dominated eastern Ontario dominated but for some reason ontario it's so uh, i like it there's this evil force that's keeping them all like hanging on like you know look i mean look how many at all these overpaid people you think they're going to want to stop that gravy train like all, all those people working at those hydro well, companies they, 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 they might when they find out that they're going to be unemployed or impoverished by these uh these ideas well, I mean, I, eventually you you look at your own pocketbook and you say yeah, I, I can't afford this. I just hope people wake up before this. the economy of this province is destroyed completely because this is not going to be pretty the next couple of years. And I really, really am praying they get voted out in the next election because this insanity has got to stop. All right. Thanks for the call, Anne. Okay, bye. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. We'll get to more of your calls in moments. And, of course, Kelly Leach on why she's running for the conservative leadership at the bottom of the hour. Make sure you stick around. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. All right, we'll try and get to as many of your calls as possible before we uh, we go to Kelly Leach at the bottom of the hour. She is uh, one of the contenders for leadership of the Conservative Party. We want to hear her elevator pitch. What's that? You're in an elevator with somebody and you got just the elevator ride to sell them. Let's go to who's waiting the longest. Uh, Pat in Lonsu. Pat. You're on Beyond Hi, the Brian. News. Hi, Brian. Hello. Um, back in the early 90s, we put in an electric forced air furnace mm-hmm. in conjunction with a heat pump. Now, at the time, that was the most cost-efficient system that we could put in. We were taking out oil, but we needed, we'd needed done a renovation. We needed a bigger uh, furnace. Okay. About, and I'm guessing now it's long ago, but three years later, the price of electricity started to rise. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. When gas became available, it was cost-effective to take that furnace out and put gas in. But the big thing for me is the fact that, and I haven't heard this mentioned yet, windmills and solar panels cannot maintain the current base load. No, they cannot. All right. So what what are you going to do? When the whole province is using electricity, the base load is going to be unreal. Bumps in it are are just unacceptable to everybody, and that doesn't seem to be taken into consideration. That you you know you put everybody in electricity and no way to maintain the base load unless you have hydrogen generation, fossil fuel, and or uh, nuclear. Yeah. They, the Liberals have already said they, they want to move, move us away from using natural gas to heat our homes. I haven't heard them say we've got to get out of, of natural gas for producing electricity, but they did say recently move away from nuclear. So 
you're right. They're going to have to have something that is not wind or solar or biomass in order to provide that base load. And that is what we need just to keep things humming along. Well, absolutely. I mean, and the other thing uh, that uh, I might mention is we talk about the fact that we sell it to the United States at a loss. Mm -hmm. Well, in fact, we don't. Uh, They are kind enough to take it from us so that we can keep our base load generators running. You can't just turn a boiler on and off. You can't just turn any kind of generator on and off. And so you have to produce a certain amount to make sure that you can meet the base load if somebody turns on a big demand. And in doing that, we're producing more than we need, and we sell it to the United States so that we can keep that base load maintained. Well, we still we were selling it at a loss. I think now it has to be at uh, uh, cost, but we were selling it at a loss because it cost us more to make it than we were getting for it. Well, okay, but my my point is is that the, they didn't take it. We'd have to shut something down. Fair enough, it ha- but it, it is it go, is it has to go somewhere. It is still at a loss. Thanks for the call. All right, thank all right. You. Quickly to Lisa. Lisa, you're on Beyond the News. Yes, uh, Brian. I think this whole scheme is a monopoly to keep the uh, the Ontario Power Generation all them going because think about it. This provide. They told us they had to raise our rates because we, they didn't make enough money over the winter. And so now this is this grand scheme to just push electric, you know, more electricity so they'll get, they won't have to do any cuts. Why can't they do cuts to themselves? Why raise our rates? Why not look at your own house and do cuts? But no, they never do that. Their grand scheme is now to, to push more electricity so that way they can still employ more and more people and keep raising the rates and make more money. And I found it interesting that Mr. McGinty is now in charge of, I heard, a wind turbine company. So, Oh, uh, is he? Yes, I, thought, I, I heard that, and I thought, well, that's really fascinating. It's corporations and hands with government. I know that sounds like conspiracy talk, but, you know, sometimes that is what's happening. I mean, why? They spent all that money to, to build that big tunnel under Niagara Falls so that it would generate more water power. They took down the coal plant so that it'd be cleaner. It seems like they, they do all this money in, in all these different directions, and, and then it's suddenly, it's not good enough. Move on to the next thing. Why don't they ever just what, use what they have and well, make cuts when they have to? They, uh, they want us all on electricity so that they can justify, and that includes electric cars. Remember I told you this. Mm. They need the customers to keep their windmill production going. Uh, and that's why they want to move us off of natural gas to heat our homes as well. Thanks for the call, Lisa. Thank you. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Coming up, Kelly Leach. Then to more of your calls. Back in moments. The unofficial opposition, the rebel himself, beyond the news with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. And then there were three. We brought you Maxime Bernier, Michael Chong yesterday, and as promised now, we're joined by Kelly Leach, who is uh, one of the three people saying, hey, I think I should be the leader of the Conservative Party. Kelly Leach joins me now. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Yourself? I'm outstanding. Well, let me ask you this. Why should you be leader of the Conservative Party? Well, look, I, uh, I've been very passionate about the party and, quite frankly, about the country since I was a child. And uh, I'm running because I know that 
our government became known to focus on lower taxes and reduce debt, dealing with a financial crisis, but I know we can be bigger and more than that. That we can answer the question, why to Canadians? What are the benefits of these fiscally responsible actions? And that's why I'm testing the waters, to be able to build a team that focuses on exactly that, what unifies us as Canadians. And, and simply put, it's working hard to help others. That's the essence of the Canadian dream. So testing the waters, are you running or testing the waters? Because I know at one point you described it almost as an exploratory committee. So wh- yeah, wh- where, I, where's where, your mind at now? And I'm still in that phase. I'm uh, I'm exploring this possibility, you know. Mr. Trudeau is a formidable opponent, and, um, you know, we have 150,000 members in our party that they want to know who can beat Mr. Trudeau. And for myself as a candidate, I want to be able to prove to our party membership, I want to have a campaign that proves to our party membership that I have what it takes to win, that I can raise money, that I can go out and recruit new members to the party in every province, and that I can have a full national campaign. And for myself, I think that that's important before making the decision to uh, to fully enter the race. Okay. So you talked about lower taxes and making that argument to Canadians. For a long time, it seemed like conservatives had won that argument, that mm-hmm. lower taxes and keeping government spending, if not down, because unfortunately it still went up all during the conservative uh, time in office, but, but the idea of uh, not having deficit spending of, you know, and even if you did, that eventually you need to walk it back quickly. That became not only a conservative idea, but it seemed like a Canadian idea. People bought into it. And then what happened? Did did conservatives stop making the argument, explaining the argument, and just assume that everyone thought that way? Because it it seemed to get tossed out the window in the last election. Well, look, I, uh, I actually do believe that all Canadians are fiscally responsible. They can serve their resources so they can then take care of their families and, and for themselves, hopefully in the future, be prosperous enough to take care of other people. And, you know, my dad said it sort of interestingly. He said, you know, Canadians have conservative values where, where we all work hard. We believe in equality of opportunity, freedom, generosity, tolerance. Um, but he says every, uh, every four years for about five weeks, they start to question that. And for, for me... I do believe that all Canadians are fiscally responsible. They want to take care of their families, and they do an outstanding job of it. But we also have to tell them why the government has to be fiscally responsible and why we're fiscally responsible. I think we have a responsibility as government to act like every other Canadian, make sure that we pay down our our deficits, start paying down the debt, and then be in a position where we can say why we're doing that. Well, we're doing that so that we can make sure that businesses can have their taxes lowered so they can employ young Canadians. We're being fiscally responsible so that we can support seniors in this country so that they can have a secure financial future after they've retired. We as conservatives are fiscally responsible because on occasion there's an individual who either through no fault of their own ends up with a disability or maybe they were born with one like some of the children I take care of in the hospital and we need to actually give them a hand up. And those of us that are fiscally responsible and pay it forward we also have to do that in government. We have a responsibility to do it. Um, we have to talk about it more, and we hadn't been doing that. And I believe that for myself, that's what I'll be talking about. How if you work hard, you live that Canadian dream, we then have a responsibility to go out and help others. 
want to ask you about uh, different factions within the party. It gets played up a lot by the media. I know at Michael Chong's news conference, the media tried hard to, you know, drive wedges within the conservative tent. And you and Michael and Max, you guys will all be driving wedges between each other, at least trying to get voters uh, to back your respective campaigns. But what about within the party? Is there a deep cleavage between red Tories and reformers and libertarians and social conservatives and fiscal conservatives? And, uh, you know, apparently uh, none of you all get along and uh, well, uh, it's just waiting to fall apart. Where, where, where are you? I would say that's complete nonsense. You know, a conservative in this country, and as I say, I think the majority of Canadians are conservatives, there is a Canadian identity, and that's grounded in conservative values. And everyone in the conservative movement, and I would say many Canadians who haven't even bought a conservative membership card yet but will in the future, have those same values. Those values of hard work, generosity, freedom, tolerance. You know, when when my family decided to come to this country in the 1800s, or I'm sure families that arrived here last week, have a preconceived notion in their head about what this place, what Canada is about. And that Canadian dream is about equality of opportunity. And every conservative is focused on that. Every conservative lives every day that if you work hard, you take care of your family, and then you pay it forward. You go take care of other people. And that's what I believe. That's what I know all of my conservative colleagues across the country believe, and I think the majority of Canadians believe that too, and that's why we're going to win in 2019. Um, the, I guess a lot of the focus from some in terms of Big Tent conservatism is, yes, Big Tent, but let's focus just on the, uh, on the economic issues, and we don't need those pesky SOCONs. Is it time to shove people out of the party, even SOCONs or other groups, or is it time to build the Big Tent, bake the bigger pie as a former... <laughs> A candidate Look, once I, said. As I say, I think that uh, conservatives across the country are bonded together by that Canadian identity, by those same values. And uh, I want to welcome as many people as possible into this family. It is a family. And you know what? Families have differences. You know, my sister, the color of my sister's hair is different than the color of my hair. And my brother has a different profession than me. But when we sit at the dinner table, we share the same values. And I believe that every conservative in this country shares those same values I spoke about earlier. And I believe that we can actually increase the number of individuals involved in our party by going out and talking about what binds us together as a party, but also what binds us together as a country, what unifies us moving forward. And the conservative party of the future will be even bigger and stronger than it was under Mr. Harper. He did an outstanding job. And I'm very proud to have been part of the of his government, and we have an opportunity, though, to grow the party even bigger, and that means being inclusive of individuals from a wide range of backgrounds. All right. Kelly Leach, thanks so much. Uh, Where can people find out more? What's your website? My website is www.kellyleach.ca, or they can use www.kellyworks.ca. Both work, and we'd be delighted to, uh, to hear from people. Uh, get their views, get their input, and uh, most importantly, get them involved in the party as we lead towards the uh, both our policy convention this month and then obviously the leadership in 2017. Well, I'll be seeing you out in Vancouver at the convention, and hopefully we can uh, grab you, get you on the radio again, and, and the offer is open to 
all of you in the leadership race. Uh, you've got a spot here. You know, there's a lot of conservatives listen to this uh, radio station, a lot listen to this program. So you, you want to talk to conservatives, make sure you give me a call. Wonderful. And I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity and I look forward to seeing you in Vancouver. All right. Thanks so much. Kelly Leach. Go to kellyworks.ca or kellyleach.ca. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back with your calls in moments. the news with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Looking to hook up with Lisa Thompson from the Ontario PC Party to get her reaction to the $7 billion plan to destroy Ontario's economy. But let's find out what you're saying. Gary in Beacon Hill. Gary, you're on Beyond the News. Yes, good morning, Brian. Morning. Um, you know, I, I think to myself, the, the upgrades in the grid alone, it's just not feasible. I mean, we're, 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 uh, the grid is already tight, let alone having to pump out twice the amount of electricity to supply the needs. As well, most houses with gas heating and gas uh, hot water have a 100-amp circuit breaker. That means that's got to be replaced. The wires have to coming in have to be, you know, everything has to be upgraded. It's, it, you know... I don't think I think there's something else. You know, I suspect the liberals are just, uh, you know, they're just they're just trying to distract the people of Ontario because they've probably got some other crazy well, wild ideas coming up. I, I I think this is all part of a plan to, uh, you know, develop their own customer base. They keep building out more and more of the green energy, Gary. They keep building more windmills, even though we we have an excess of power, and you have to say why. Well, yes. because their their plan is to put us in green cars and get us heating our homes this way. Well, and you know, and I like uh, Bill Gates. I was reading some of his stuff. Now I know he's well, a bit off there, but the as he said, build all the green energy you want, all the re- renewable energy you want. But the first thing we have to build is a, a means of storing that electricity, and that's why he's invested a billion dollars into uh, new ways of batteries because there's been no advances in the battery, and he's saying they're experimenting with spent uh, uranium and uh, liquid batteries, that's the key. I mean, if you could store it, we, we don't have to turn off the windmills and turn off the and pay them for it. It's ridiculous. The whole thing is crazy. Uh, thanks, Gary. Thank you. Let's go to hi. Ruth in Canada. Ruth, you're on Beyond the News. Oh, hi. This is insane. This is absolutely insane. But it's for the good of the planet, Ruth, so uh, just pipe down and do what you're told. Well, the thing is, we listen to CFRA. We know what's going on, but the, there's so many people don't uh, throughout the province. It's up to us to get the word out. And the gas companies, imagine Enbridge not being informed, the guy says. Well, it's up to them to do something. Stand up. And all the truckers, the carbon tax, the carbon credits, the, 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 the truckers across Ontario could block the highways, do something, so that this bloody government wakes up and realizes that the people are standing up and saying, we're not doing this, you know? Like, well, I, I, th- as we speak, the the wheels are in motion for the activism that I told you about. And as soon as we've got yeah. the plan together, yeah. I'll reveal it to you. And, and the goal is to make it easy for everyone to do something. Because just calling up and screaming at the radio, yeah. 
Uh, that won't accomplish anything. It, it lets us vent our spleen, helps uh-huh. lower the blood pressure, I hope. Uh-huh. But we need to put pressure. Well, and furthermore, we have to educate the younger kids because they don't have a clue what's going on, Brian. Okay? But, you and know, ha- I, I, I was doing that last night, Yeah, uh, made my kids watch Dr. Patrick Moore, uh-huh. co-founder of Greenpeace, on yeah. the lack of correlation between carbon dioxide in the atmosphere uh-huh. and temperature. Because if the correlation that they claim is there actually existed, uh, we'd be boiled off the planet by now. (laughs) Wild, eh? And I wonder what heating Glenn Murray has. Huh? I Uh, wonder what he heats with. Yeah, I I don't know. I I couldn't tell if he said his apartment in Toronto doesn't have it or does. Anyway, Uh, hopefully there's enough pressure right now from open line shows, from editorials, from columns that they back away. Thanks for the call, Ruth. God bless. Let's go to Alan in Montreal. Alan, can we buy our electricity from you guys in Quebec? <laughs> hey, good morning, Brian. It's cheaper. You know, you know, sometimes I tune you guys in, and I think you and your listeners are the only voice of logic within a few thousand kilometers radius. It's, it's unbelievable. You know, we've I'm living in Montreal. Uh, my wife and I, we were looking for property in Ontario the last couple of years. We recently bought a property. Everyone we talked to, how do you heat your house? Oh, gas or oil. Many, many used to heat with electricity, but because of the high prices in peak time, 18 cents a kilowatt hour, they've gone to oil. The, the Premier Wynne, she's, she's put in these, these pricing in electricity to force people off electricity, onto oil and gas. And, and, and now, now she, she wants says, to try and force us off of oil <laughs> and gas and into electricity. And now she says, oops, we have to raise the price of electricity even more because we're not consuming enough, and also now our contribution to the so-called greenhouse gases is higher because we're burning more oil and gas. I mean, one word. Wait a minute, two words. Total incompetence. And it's sad. Quebec has done it with language and politics. They've turned the province into a loser province in the 60s. Montreal was the economic capital of Canada, and I'm fearful now that Wynne is doing the same thing with energy to Ontario going to make it into another loser province. You know, the the economic capital of Canada used to be Halifax, Allen. Yes. And then it moved to Montreal. Yes. And when I was a kid, Toronto was not that big. Right. Then it became huge. It became the, the, yeah. the capital. Oh, yeah. If Toronto wants to mess things up, there is a beautiful city called Calgary just yes. waiting to take over. And they may be in the dumps right now oh, due I'm to sure. the price of oil, but... They have the infrastructure in terms of banking and insurance and all these other things to to take over, and they'd be happy to do it. Thanks yep. for the and call. It's, you know, you, you can't you can't make it a problem with the price of such a high price of electricity and expect businesses and manufacturing to come back or even stay in Ontario. No, no. I mean, that's part of why we are uh, meeting our Kyoto targets so well is we've driven the manufacturing yes. out. Yes. Thanks, Alan. Okay, thanks. Good show. All right. Last word goes to Dan in Ottawa. We're, we're making it through all the calls. Look at this. Dan, go. Hi, Brian. Hi, Dan. Uh, I just wanted to uh, make a comment about something I never, I don't think anybody's mentioned yet. Maybe I missed it. But, yes, I believe it has a lot to do with the green zealots in the government of Ontario that want to push us onto, uh, onto electricity for the and build up the the uh, solar and wind industry, but I think also there's a there's a part 
of it that since they privatized part of it, they're trying to increase the stock value of Ontario Hydro so that they can sell more <laughs> stock and so that it's a profitable corporation. I hadn't thought of that. See, I, I knew they were trying to go for the customers, but I'm, you know, it, it's such a false, fake privatization that I wasn't thinking about it. But you're right. If they increase it and they're doing an IPO, then, hey, it works out well for them. They can sell more shares. Yeah, and the shares are worth a lot more because, look, we've got another 75% of the people using that much more hydro. Thanks for the call, Dan. I'm going to look into that some more. Excellent, excellent point. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. When we come back, my friend Simon Kent, editor at Breitbart London, is going to join us. Big bun fight over Britain leaving the EU. We've also got Charles Ortel coming up later in the show on the Clinton Foundation and what he says is very shady dealings. And Anthony Fury, Sun columnist, he'll join us as well. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. There's a bun fight happening in Britain right now over whether the UK should leave the EU. And just to tell you how silly it's getting, I want to bring on Simon Kent. He's editor at uh, Breitbart London. You want to know what's happening over in the UK. You want a good perspective. Follow Breitbart London. But the latest piece up on Breitbart London is that British Prime Minister David Cameron took Project Fear to another level today as he claimed Islamic State would be happy if Britain voted to leave the EU. Simon, is is this for real or are you guys inventing stuff? I, I couldn't make this up if I tried. No, I think if you tried to make something like that, that, that ISIS you know, would, would, would be applauding, absolutely cheering to the rafters any moves... Uh, <laughs> any Brexit, you'd, you'd probably feel you're in a Monty Python skit. And we've got this story today on Breitbart London. This only came out about half an hour ago, but it shows the, the, the sheer desperation that the Remainers, uh, being led by David Cameron, are going to. We've had everything promised except flood, famine, pestilence, plague, you name it. Locusts. Are you going to have locusts? Yeah, locusts. Yeah, let's go the whole biblical, all, all the plagues. But uh, <laughs> it's easy it's easy to mock that, but the level of seriousness is being pushed to one side, and David Cameron seems to be hyperventilating all the time and looking for the fainting couch whenever he realises that more and more the argument is building up to leave, and he's looking increasingly desperate. The Project Fear, this is something that... Uh that Cameron was actually involved in. Now, his government is split, correct? I mean, you've got some conservatives saying that Britain should leave the EU, but he's leading up the campaign to keep it in. Even though we promised a referendum, he decided, let's keep Britain in. But you you have another story up saying that as he was renegotiating, trying to get a better deal for Britain in the EU, he was actually planning this project fear, uh, an attempt to claim that you know the, the seven plagues were coming if if Britain voted to leave? Well, that's it. He was sort of walking both sides of the street, wasn't he? Publicly, he was saying he was going to Europe last year. And I remember at the time, he, he was flying in between European capitals and then he'd go to Strasbourg, then he'd go to Paris, telling everyone he was working hard on a special deal. I bet if someone put him on the stump now, he couldn't even remember what he was supposed to negotiate. Yet, at the same time, he was slowly building up this uh, uh, Remain case, slowly getting ready to, to fight on those terms. And you mentioned how the Conservative Party is split over here. You've got Boris Johnson, who is, is making a fair fist of 
of leading the, the Leave campaign and, and dragging them out. It's a terrible look for the Conservative Party to be fighting amongst themselves. And this sort of thing usually happens behind closed doors in a cabinet room. It doesn't happen in major public forums. And uh, but, but, I mean, the major... Conservatives have long been split on this. Uh, I, Margaret Thatcher and John Major had to deal with so-called Eurosceptics, and they lost, the Eurosceptics lost the argument, and Britain got you know, more and more involved, more entwined with the European Union. But now I think the public is is moving away from that. Where are the polls? Uh, the polls, it's interesting, we're talking about that here at the Breitbart London office today. The polls are still bouncing all around the place. And, and we had a poll earlier today saying that, that the Remainers were well in front. Now we've had one just in the last hour or so that saying Remain is back in. I, I think it's yeah, still five weeks to go, uh, but the fact they're bouncing around a lot means to me no one's presented a really persuasive argument yet that, that one side or the other is prepared to swallow. Um, and I, like all elections, we'll, we'll probably find out on the day because there might be a lot of people who want to say leave, but they're shy about it, and they're not going to say it publicly until they actually get the chance to vote. But it's been an extraordinary run. Well, we, we, we had um, Last month we had Barack Obama come over here and try to tell English people uh, to, how to decide the future of their country. It's quite an extraordinary um, display in you just talked about polls. When Barack Obama went back home, actually the amount of support against him and falling in for leave increased because he carried no weight at all, which is probably as you'd expect. Well, yeah, there were a lot of people upset at Barack Obama injecting himself into a foreign country's politics. But I mean, David Cameron's doing that by uh, denouncing Donald Trump. So he's turning around and doing the same. Trump is, uh, he came out and said, no, Obama's wrong. Britain should leave the EU. Well, I, I, I think you summed up the arguments there pretty well, but this is all part of the all the argy-bargy. But uh, let's put it this way. When Barack Obama came over here and tried so strenuously to persuade uh, the Brits to stay in, the contrary argument was, well, Barack Obama, would you go home and move the U.S. Supreme Court to Mexico City? Would you take the Federal Reserve to Ottawa? Because at the moment, the way the EU is structured... Uh, the highest court in the land is not in the, in the UK, but it, but it's over in Strasbourg, and and monetary and fiscal policy is often decided over in in um, in Europe as well. So uh, there's a lot of British people who are so sick of the infighting, but they also want to take their country back. They want to control their borders. They want to control immigration. They want to control the country's destiny. And no one can still say this country would be worse off if it came out than if it remained, because it's a big world out there. And, and the UK has done it before, and it can do it again. It can stand on its own two feet in the same way that Canada does. You and I spoke a little while ago about some of the uh, projects. I mean, the EU is ridiculous in terms of regulations. They banned oh, yeah. high-powered vacuums uh, because of climate change. Then they apparently they had rules to, to stop people from having fast-acting or fast-operating uh, tea kettles. Because of climate change, so you've got to use a slower tea kettle, and they were about to bring that out until this came out. Now they're holding it back because if they tell the Brits you can't have good tea kettles due to European Union regulations, <laughs> you guys will riot. Well, that's right. And you say, you guys, I'm Australian, but I've drunk enough tea since I'm over here. I think I drink my body weight every day. But, <laughs> but beneath, beneath that, there's a serious point. There's a bottom drawer hidden somewhere in Brussels, where all these regulations will come out again after the vote is taken, if, if the vote is to remain. And I really hope it is to, to, to leave as well. But, but all sorts of things, that same as um, dictated a few years ago, that whether or not bananas should be straight, and, and you talk about kettles and all oh, the... Getting rid of the pint? 
Yes, that's right. All the day-to-day detail of public life, which must be mandated, which must be be determined by by, uh, gnomes in in Strasbourg and and Brussels. It's it's just a crazy thing. And I know Canadians, as well as I do from being lucky enough to live there for four years, Canadians wouldn't put up with this sort of thing. Why would any... And the, the, the US wouldn't. So why would anybody expect the Brits to keep on living like this? And Toward, as we get closer to the vote, I think people will realise that freedom has a lot more going to it than servitude uh, to the EU. I, I think people on the continent like it that way, but I don't think anyone in the Anglosphere likes it that way. We no, are you're right. We're, we're a bunch of people that want to, you know, leave me alone. Let me ask you, you mentioned that you're an Aussie. Uh, if people couldn't tell by uh, your crazy accent, <laughs> you are an Aussie. So as a prisoner of Mother England, uh, who's lived over there for quite a while, uh, do you get to vote or does the... Um, does the criminal um, uh, record that you have from being an Aussie, does that prevent you? Well, the stain of criminality being born an Australian doesn't preclude me from voting <laughs> as, long as, I, as long as I register, which I'll be doing this weekend. And thank you for reminding me because, um, yeah, I, I, I'd dearly love to see this country get out and get out sooner rather than later. But, yes, even, even convict Australian stuff like me are allowed to, uh, to vote, which says something, I guess, for, for this country's love of freedom if they let someone like me in a voting booth. All right, Simon, thanks so much for the time. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Brian. Simon Kent is the uh, editor of Breitbart London. You want to know what's going on over in the UK? They're dealing with a lot of insanity and this vote on whether to leave, and they should leave. Well, follow Breitbart London. Up next, Lisa Thompson from the Ontario PC Party. What are they doing to stop the madness that is Kathleen Wynne's Green Plan? to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. We've been talking about the insanity today that is Kathleen Wynne's $7 billion climate change plan that they're going to release later this spring. Details coming out in the Globe and Mail and other media outlets show Uh, An attempt to move us off of natural gas. This is something that Glenn Murray was even upfront about. Before we get to Lisa Thompson, let's play the clip of Glenn Murray. This just last week saying we've got to get off of natural gas to heat our homes. So we are working with Enbridge, with Union Gas, with the sector, the geothermal sector, to improve the efficiency and where we have better and more affordable technologies for Ontarians, switch those out. Home heating in the future is going to come to have to come from sources other than natural gas. In Toronto, where I live, my building and others in my neighbourhood don't need to be running on natural gas. Well, they don't need to be, but they are. Uh, and maybe they are because it's efficient and people like it. Lisa Thompson is the environment critic for the PC Party of Ontario. And Ms. Thompson, thanks for the time. What what can you tell us is true or not true in what we're hearing about this insane plan of Kathleen Wynne's? Well, the fact of the matter is what we have is a government that's totally out of control and out of touch with Ontarians. And you described it perfectly. It's a crazy plan, Brian. It's important that your listeners understand that what they just heard the Minister of Environment and Climate Change suggest would affect 76% of Ontarians. 76% of Ontarians rely on affordable fuel to heat their home, which is natural gas. And uh, it is just totally reckless, the manner in which this government is working through their vision 
to address climate change. And, you know, it's so reckless. I think we can't underscore the significance of the fact that somebody chose to be a whistleblower and outed this Liberal government with, by sounding the alarm with the media last week. And so dribs and drabs have come out, but now Union Gas and Enbridge are saying, we weren't notified of this. Exactly. They didn't tell us. Union Gas saying it'll co- the average household would see their heating bill rise by $3,000 a year. That's the average. So if you've got a larger home, you're, what, looking at $4,000, $5,000 extra per year. That's exactly right. And I'm so glad you recognize that, Brian, because, again, going back to that sound clip you just played, the minister... If you were to listen to that and not know any better, you would think what he was saying was absolutely true. But both Enbridge and Union Gas came out saying we were not aware the Liberal government was contemplating cutting three-quarters of Ontarians off of natural gas. And they need to be held accountable for this. The fact is, you know, you talk about the increase of moving over to electric heat. Well, that's over and above Enbridge's estimates to convert the home in the first place from natural gas to electricity, which is another approximate $4,500. And Ontarians already are are stressed. They're already stressed, you know, finding the extra dollars to heat their homes, feed their families, and have a little bit left over at the end of the day. And this government is just totally thumbing their nose at Ontarians and and businesses. I think it's important to recognize, Brian, that in southwestern Ontario over the weekend, and I'm sure we, we will be hearing more and more from across the province, people are standing up saying, wait a second, this isn't what we bargained for so- when the Liberals were forging ahead with their, their plan. The mayor of Sarnia, the president of the Ontario Federation of Agriculture, the president of the London Chamber of Commerce, they, they came out over the weekend saying, you know what? Perhaps we need to hit the pause button here. And what are we doing in opposition? We're encouraging everyone to stand up and say, you know what? This government's out of control. They've lost touch. And we are going to stand up against them, you know, increasing the cost of fuel, increasing the cost of heating by regulating natural gas out of existence. It's totally unacceptable. The price of Hydro One stocks, uh, I want to point out, speaking with Lisa Thompson, Ontario Environment Critic, uh, Lisa, the price has gone up from just around $23.60 last Thursday when this news started to break. It was just under $24 well, uh, as, as of uh, this morning. So it, yeah, I think there's a reason that they're doing this. I think they want more clients. I think they want to sell more shares. And they're using the environment as uh, one. I, I think it is part of their ideological agenda, their central planning ideological agenda. But as a caller pointed out, I think this is part of boosting the shares of Hydro One so they can sell more of it. Well, that's very astute. I can congratulate the caller and yourself because you're not the first ones to suggest that. But herein lies the the situation here. Our Our leader, Patrick Brown, and our party, we've stood up against this Liberal government for months now saying this Liberal government is doing nothing but using the environment for photo ops and grandstanding. All the while, they're contriving behind the scenes, behind the the secret cloaks, if you will, devastating plans that will end up seeing this government yet again choose winners and losers. And at the end of the day, it's going to be Ontario businesses and Ontario taxpayers that are the losers. 
All right. Lisa Thompson, uh, environment critic for the Ontario PCs. Thanks so much. So people should con- contact their local M- MPP. Is that one of the best things they can do? Absolutely. Reach out to uh, your local MPP and, and, and exercise your voice saying, we need an affordable Ontario. Taxpayers and businesses alike, we encourage you to reach out to your chambers. We encourage you to reach out to your, your elected representatives, even at the municipal level. People, this government has to finally realize that they've reached the brink and yeah. Ontarians have had enough. Thanks so much, Lisa. Thank you. And of course, as I said, we're working on a way to make all of this easy for you. We'll bring it to you when that happens. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Oh, man, this is Dave in the booth having a bit of fun there with uh, Justin Trudeau and Whip Nene. I I was playing Whip Nene this morning because Andrew Leslie, the liberal whip, couldn't count. Uh, You know, the general couldn't muster his own troops. But this is... This is Trudeau. He was speaking last night, was it, about um, his government bringing in the uh, the new gender expression, gender identity legislation? Is that what it was? Twerk diligently. Twerk oh. diligently. <laughs> I think he's saying to work or something, but it sounds like twerk. Play that whole whip whip thing again. Twerk twerk diligently. <laughs> oh, that is fun. We're uh, we're hoping to get a hold of Bill Forche with CTV Edmonton. He's up in Fort Mac again. Of course, uh, we spoke with Bill over the last couple of weeks several times. This is um, the fires are now threatening the oil camp. So we'll try and get a hold of Bill. But of course, he's busy. He's working. So that may not. Uh, he's twerking diligently. He's twerking diligently up in Fort Mac. Twerk diligently. And he also uh, may have be at a cell range because he was traveling between Lac La Biche and Fort McMurray. So we'll see how things go. As I say, we'll try and get a hold of him. I want to comment a little bit on this issue that you're hearing about in the newscasts and you are you're going to be inundated with this story. The government has announced new protections for Gender identity and gender exclusion. We're going to add it to the criminal code and the human rights code. And I just want to say why I'm actually so opposed to this. It's not because I want discrimination. It's because the list of groups that now have extra special protections is continuing to grow. And I don't believe in adding any of those groups because I believe in this simple premise that we are all equal before the law. We all have the same rights. So why, why add different groups? Why say, let's do, let's have uh, extra rights, extra protections for transgendered? Why have special protections for women? We should all just be holding on to the idea that we are all created equal. We are all equal before the law. 
It's like hate speech legislation or hate crime legislation. One, I, I don't believe in hate, hate speech legislation. I believe in free speech. I believe in, in saying that we can, we can just say what we want. Having the government tell us that some speech is allowed and some are not, well, that's not a good idea. So I don't believe in hate speech legislation. But hate crimes? I'm sorry. Uh, does it make it worse that I beat the crap out of you because I hate your group than, than I hate you? I don't think so. These things are often driven by feelings, and you're not going to hear an awful lot of people say adding gender identity and gender, uh, what, what's the other term? Gender identity, you know, adding these things to the criminal code. Will it help anyone? I would say no. We all have the right to be free from discrimination. We all have the right to be treated equally by governments before the courts of law. We all have the, the fundamental freedoms outlined in the Charter, in the Bill of Rights. Yes, we do have a Bill of Rights. It's still on the books. It still exists. But what I think happens is that this is like Animal Farm. All animals are equal. Some animals are more equal than others. We used to joke when I was younger that it will get to the point where only white males are not given special protections by the law. And I think that we're headed towards that right now. As soon as a group becomes politically... Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word here. As soon as a group becomes politically popular, then they have to be given special protections. I say peel all of those back. All of them. And just go with what the Charter says. Just go with the idea that each and every one of us has the, the same protections before the law, that we're all treated the same way, that we should be free from discrimination, that we all have freedom of conscience and religion, freedom of thought, belief, opinion, expression, including freedom of the press and other media communication, freedom of peaceful assembly, freedom of association, that we all have the right to vote. That every citizen of Canada has the right to enter, remain in, and leave Canada. Every citizen of Canada, every person who has the status of permanent resident has the right to move and take up residence in any province, pursue uh, the gaining of a livelihood in the province. All of these things are outlined. Everyone has the right to life, liberty, security of the person, the right not to be deprived thereof except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. Everyone has the right to be secure against unreasonable search or seizure. Everyone has the right not to be arbitrarily detained or imprisoned. Everyone has the right on arrest or detention to be informed promptly of the reasons, therefore, to retain and instruct counsel without delay, to have the validity of detention determined by way of habeas corpus and to be released if the detention is not lawful. We have a Charter of Rights. We believe in equality. We believe in these freedoms. And yet we add more and more groups as in the, the special cause. Now, the, you will not hear this viewpoint put out there often. In fact, you will hear the opposite. Most voices in the media are just going to champion this as a great thing. Oh, we've got to protect the transgendered. If we just stuck to what we started out with, if we just stuck to the charter, 
if we stuck to our, our principles, they would have the same protections as everyone else. That's all of us, all any of us need. That's what we should want. But you won't hear that idea put out there. You will hear, this is wonderful, this is good. And I will be described as a hate monger for saying, treat everyone the same. We are all made in the image of God. We are all born equal. We don't need to have this ongoing march to say, but especially women, and especially visible minorities, and especially aboriginals, and especially uh, LGBT, and especially transgendered, and especially, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. I think it cheapens the fundamental freedoms that are laid out in the Charter of Rights. I think it cheapens the idea that we are all equal. But unfortunately, just standing for equality is an odd concept these days. Just saying, we are all born the same, we are all born equal, we should not discriminate against one, one another, that's the wrong way to go. I happen to believe that one day soon, these uh, new measures will be used to actually discriminate. They will be used to take away someone else's rights in one way or another. So this isn't really about equality. This is going to be about changing social policy outside of areas of discrimination. It will be about changing social policy outside of what the Charter is supposed to be there for. truly is sad for, for Canada that we continue to, to move away from that simple idea that predates Pierre Elliott Trudeau's charter, that predates Diefenbaker's Bill of Rights. It's unfortunate that we've had to do that, but I'm not sure that we can turn back. There, I've said my piece. We won't say too much more about that. Continuing to try and get a hold of Bill Forche up in uh, Fort McMurray. He's tracking what's going on with the latest on these fires. He's tracking what is uh, threatening the, you know, beyond the town. The, the fires have gone well beyond the town now, and they're threatening the oil sands projects. Many of them had been shut down earlier. Then there was an attempt to say, okay, maybe we can go back in there. The fires have changed. We want the latest from Bill Forche. We'll see if we can get it. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. Well, if you thought it was all over in Fort McMurray when it comes to the fires, think again. The town appears to be safe, but uh, unfortunately, the work camps north and... Uh, are, are the camps to the south under in trouble as well? Let's find out. Bill Forche is reporter and anchor with CTV Edmonton, joins us once again. Uh, Bill, where are the, the camps that are being threatened? What's going on? So uh, most of the camps in the oil sands region are north of Fort McMurray, uh, pretty much all of them. I'm not aware of any uh, major camps to the south. Uh, there are mainly between Fort McMurray and Fort Mackay, and then there are, I believe, some north of Fort Mackay as well. The ones that have been evacuated, those 8,000 or so people, 
those are all between Fort McMurray and Fort Mackay. That happened, uh, of course, yesterday and into last night. Okay, so what um, are, are are we talking about a mass evacuation? I know at their peaks, these work camps can be another forty five thousand on top of the population of the the town of Fort McMurray. Yeah, yeah, these so are. So uh, were, were they full, or had they already been scaled back due to the fires? I think they were certainly scaled back. As you said, though, I mean, you know, I think a lot of people thought, okay, the worst has passed, you know, Fort McMurray is in rebuilding stage, and then all of a sudden this fire, you know, the wind's changed and the thing can come back. Uh, you know, I, I don't think there were full staffing there, but certainly 8,000 people is, uh, you know, a significant amount, a significant number of people. Um, I'm told that the evacuation was done in a fairly orderly process. You know, these are, this isn't like evacuating a city. These are places with procedures in place, evacuation procedures. Uh, they can drive people out. They can fly people out. You know, they have a plan in place to move people north and to move people south. So it did take a few hours, but I'm told it was, uh, you know, a lot of these people, this is the second time they've been evacuated. So it's a little frustrating for people, but, you know, they understand why they're being evacuated. Uh, I don't know if you saw any of those images that came out yesterday, but, uh, you know, the sky was sort of a bright red, bright orange yesterday afternoon when things started to really flare up. Uh, flames moving very close. We're hearing that at least one uh, camp, uh, and not an actual oil sands facility, but a camp where people are staying. It's called a Black Sand Executive Lodge, uh, potentially maybe on fire or maybe uh, certainly threatened flames at this point. Uh, so certainly those people did have to get out. Okay, so, the, but it was, you know, on fire, but not with a lot of people in it. No, like they, everybody got out is, okay. is what we're hearing in a fairly so, uh, organized manner. What happened? I, You know, I'd started to think that things were were going better for the area, that you know, the, the, the town, people were touring the town. They were talking about putting infrastructure back in so that uh, we could uh, we could look at getting the population moving back in. I know there's a, a good distance between the work camps and the town, but what happened to, to you know, get the fire going again? Was it just a, a still a lack of rain? Uh, was it winds? Are these new fires? What's happening? Yeah, I mean, all of the above. It is. It, they're not new fires. These are the same fires. Uh, the, uh, a big problem is the lack of rain. And, you know, they were expecting some initially this week, and uh, that's slowly been pushed back. Uh, our meteorologist now saying, you know, we may not see rain till this weekend. So it's very, very dry, very smoky. Uh, and, uh, you know, w- when the wind picks up, it really does move uh, this smoke around. This is a lot of the fire that's already come through town, now coming back towards town. And, in fact, uh, overnight and into this morning, uh, parts of the city of Fort McMurray once again were on fire up in the north and the northwest. Uh, there was an explosion in one neighborhood, and several homes were were burned. Uh, I that, believe that's in town. That's in town. Yeah, wow. right on the north edge and uh, the west edge of town. So, I mean, it just shows you what they've been saying. You know, it, as much as it seemed like things had calmed down, the danger is not over. We we still have an extreme wildfire risk, and we still have active fire moving through this area. So, you know. Overnight, new fires in town, fires heading towards, you know, within 50 kilometers north of town where, where a lot of these um, uh, oil sands facilities are. So a very active fire in this region right now. From where we are, we're inside Fort McMurray right now. We can certainly see a thick smoke. We can't see any fire, mainly because we don't have great visibility. We can't see more than a couple of kilometers because of how thick the smoke is. Oh, wow. That's unreal. So we'll be seeing this tonight on uh, on CTV News. It definitely CTV News Edmonton, but I'm sure some of this will be shared across the country, right? You bet. So what's the Premier saying now in terms of um, the overall threat to the province? Well, the Premier is uh, speaking in six minutes, and I'll be uh, listening in on that as soon as we're done here. 
but uh, you know she did speak last night and uh, just gave an update and, and you know said that this wasn't altogether unexpected. They've been and, and you know she's right. They have been saying all along that the threat is not gone and that you know well it's not clear how this will impact the return plan, the reentry plan for former McMurray residents. You know it's clear it will affect it somehow because you know the plan was by Friday for the premier to give some sort of an announcement on a timeline for reentry. A big part of reentry, the number one thing that has to be in place is that the imminent threat of wildfire has to be gone. So as we're seeing now, and as we saw last night, that certainly is not the case right now. You know, all the other things that have to happen, uh, including getting utilities back in order, getting, you know, working police, healthcare, fire, all that has to be in place. Working government has to be in place. All those things are going to be impacted, not just by the intense thick smoke in town, but by the fires that continue to burn. All right. Uh, Bill, uh, thank you for your time. I know it's uh, a a lot of work that you've got to do, but thanks for helping us out here at CFRA. And uh, I know we've we've told you about the fundraising that we've done at the Rebel before. Uh, Mayor Jim Watson here in Ottawa is uh, announcing and promoting heavily a fundraising night where they're going to try and fill our cow palace at our exhibition grounds to, you know, have people come out for a a, a bit of a a higher end fundraiser to to raise money. And uh, you're everyone there still on our thoughts and prayers. Appreciate that. All right. Thanks so much. Bill Fortune. Thanks, Brian. Uh, reporter and anchor with CTV Edmonton. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back after this. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Follow the outrage on Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Give it to me. I'm worth it. All right. We're here. What's going on? What the heck are you guys doing? Has everybody gone nuts around here? We got just the thing for that. We call it the Fast and the Furious. Well, let's start the insanity. Unleash the Fury! I think that signals to everyone who we're talking to next. The Fast and the Furious, <laughs> Anthony Fury. Not many people get their own uh, their own intro there. But you do. You know, Brian, the man tries to keep me down they try to get rid of me they try to throw my intro music away but rising from the ashes like a phoenix i return let's get her done my friend let's get her done okay you have a couple of great (laughs) columns that i want to talk to you about and uh first let's go back in time a little bit it seems so long ago that that we were all praying for sophie uh, because (laughs) you know I, i i know that it's it's hard having no team and by no team, I mean at least 10 people running your life, and you feel like you need more. But you wrote a, a column saying that Sophie Gregoire Trudeau owes parents everywhere an explanation. I, I might say she owes us an apology. Well, well, first of all, I just want to make clear that before this segment is over, you and I are going to sing Andrew Lloyd Webber tunes from Evita, right? <laughs> I just that I, was I, the agreement. I said it only come on if Brian and I get to sing some show tunes that refer to Sophie. I, I'm all good with that. I love the show tunes. I, I also, um, you know, I have been calling her Sophie Antoinette on the air quite a bit. <laughs> Look, you know, in my column, it's like I, I'm not. I, first of all, I don't want to be talking about the spouse of any of any prime minister, or premier, or mayor. It's generally not the Canadian way. We don't have this celebrity culture. But she kind of started it, or at least the Le Soleil newspaper started it by bringing this out from her, in which she says she doesn't just say, and we're not just getting some news release that the PMO or the government house leader they're considering maybe upping the support for the spouse of the PM, and then we'd have this sort of pseudo public policy debate, and reasonable people would agree and disagree of what should happen. No, it's the fact that she 
she came forward with this statement and said, my husband, he's the prime minister, I have three kids, oh my God, I need help. And, and it's that whole attitude, and we don't really know how she said it, it's in print, but it's that whole attitude that had parents writing into me and tweeting at me, and I'm sure you had the same of folks going, well, hold on a second. Me, I got my three kids, whatever as well, I'm working, husband and wife, they're both working, we have zero support, and this lady wants to use our tax dollars so she can have even more support. And she seems like she's almost being a little entitled about it. A, a, not a team. Well. She wants a team. I, I know a bunch of her defenders in the media kept saying, no, she just wants an assistant. No, she already has an assistant. She says she needs a team. So I counted up the team. And that includes a household manager who makes sure that the house, everything, you know, bills paid, things ordered in, uh, groceries done, all that. That's the household manager. You got the uh, the two housekeepers, the two nannies, the chef, the driver. The security detail, the groundskeeper, plus the personal assistant, we're up to 10 people already. And now she says she needs a whole bunch more. And I think that's what bothered people. My view was let let the Liberal Party pay for it, because who's the beneficiary? It's not the people of Canada. It's not the government of Canada. She's out there essentially promoting the image of the Trudeaus, which is an extension of the Liberal Party. And I agree with you. And look, there are many times when you find out that the leader of a party has extra support or has a salary bump that's paid for out of the party rather than out of the but pockets of the taxpayers. Dalton and, and Dal- McGuinty. Right. Dalton McGuinty, um, you know, I guess so many premiers were from the Toronto area or we don't have an official residence for premiers. Dalton McGuinty wanted a home that he could have people over to while he was in Toronto. So the party said, we'll pay for it. We'll bump up beyond what the... Uh, the rent allotment is for an MPP. I had no problem with that. That's up to the party. They decided they wanted to use funds that way. Good for them. Yeah, exactly. And this impacts taxpayer dollars and she is not an official position. And I, I just, it's, it frustrated me so much, Brian, the elitist response that the sort of spin machine got and the media people at the CBC and the Star who are pro-liberal. My favorite one being, oh, you're just jealous, you're envious. It's, what, what is it, tall poppy syndrome? I, I don't really know much about this lady. How can I be envious of her? I, there's, there's no envy involved. I'm just, you know, a little upset at this implication that she's got it tough and needs help out of my pocketbook when, when me and the wife don't even have help. Let's talk about the column that you've got out on the conservative leadership. You're a big fan of Maxime Bernier. Not a surprise because he has libertarian leanings, but is um, and so do you. Yeah, I mean, I think Maxime Bernier is definitely going to be a, a fresh direction and a fresh face for this conversation. I like that he's a conviction politician. I like conviction politicians, period, whether or not I agree with their convictions. I think Barack Obama is a conviction politician, and that's one of the reasons why he was able to be so popular with people. He just you know, firmly asserts what he believes, and there's no equivocating. I like that a lot. You see that in Rob Ford. You see that in Ronald Reagan. Now we're seeing it in Maxime Bernier, and, and I think Stephen Harper was also a conviction politician. So he's got that, which is great, because you know, I'm watching this Kelly Leach campaign unfold, and you're like, what are the ideas? What, what do you bring, in, bring to the table? You're an accomplished surgeon, which I think is awesome. I respect you for that. But you bring in no ideas to the table. Come on here. Whereas Bernier, he's got his ideas. He's going to stick to them. And he's going to get a pretty diehard following. And you're going to see him sticking around all throughout the campaign. And, you know, to, whether he wins or not, he's going to be towards one of the final, I don't want to say ballot because it's not really that process. But he's going to be sticking in and he's going to do well. Well, I had Kelly Leach on this morning. She told me she's still just exploring. 
Oh, so, I mean, come on. She's she's been I, I'm reading this great new book. I've just finished it by uh, Patrick Boyer. It's the history of the PC party in Ontario. It's a history book. And Kelly is in it. She has been around for decades since she was like 18. She hasn't she's only been an MP since I think 2011. But she's been in the party for ages. Clearly, she should have firm ideas about what policies she thinks she needs to bring about to better Canadians lives It's bogus. It means she's just going to campaign by focus group. There's a reason why she's polling 1%, which is within the margin of error. As like nobody actually supports her. Michael John came out yesterday, had him on the show after his announcement, and he surprised me. Now, I, he, he knows I disagreed with him when he said we need to put a price on carbon and deal with the carbon tax, but he surprised me with some of his other statements, sounding like there was a, a hint of libertarianism thrown into the mix. Yeah, when he's talking about a fair tax system, a flatter tax system, I think he's going to have a lot of people support him. It's this small government view that I think you're going to be able to get broader consensus on. Because clearly what needs to happen right now with the Conservatives is they need to widen the tent, not narrow it. And I think Bernier can do it, and I think Chong's actually got to do it too. And I, I'm with you. I, I thought, I, I don't know about this guy. And then I actually heard him bring forward these robust ideas, and I go, great, we got a race of, of firm ideas now. Cool. Yeah, and I, and I like that. And and you talked about widening the tent, and you know that um, you know, I, at times uh, have positions that people say that's a SOCON point of view, but you and I you get never. along great. Uh, no, exactly. But Bernier, I said to him, um, what, what about SOCONs? And he said, they're part of the party. Let's find ways to work together. That's, uh, you know, unfortunately with some in the conservative movement right now, they're forgetting that uh, my 80% friend is not my 20% enemy idea and saying, let's exclude people. And you got to bring everybody together. You got to bring together even people that are, you know, they voted conservative because of tough on crime. You can still do that and still have libertarian ideas and still have, um, you know, economically fiscal ideas. There's ways to do it without going overboard, which the conservatives may have done. They may have played that card one too many times. Yeah, I mean, I think that the notion of just going after the base, so, you know, tough and crime is like marquee legislation. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, but I wouldn't make those my marquee things. Your top, your top bench legislation is what you want to be your stuff you can get national consensus on, which I think is just more freedom, less tax impact on people's everyday lives, and more personal responsibility. And I think that's something that we, you can totally steal back liberal votes on. All right. Anthony Fury, great talking as always. You can read Anthony in the Toronto Sun, Ottawa Sun, other... Sun Papers. Enjoy the 80s music, my friend. Take care, my beautiful friend. Thank you, sir. All right. Coming up next, we are going to be talking about Briere Continuing Care. Of course, their, their Radiothon comes up is it next week already. Barb Farrell, pharmacist at Briere Geriatric Day Hospital, dropping in. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Get some FaceTime with Brian. Join the resistance at Facebook.com slash 580CFRA. Ooh, looks like I've been neglecting your emails. Lots of you emailing me questions and thoughts, and I've been busy trying to get lunch. Uh, the email is beyondthenews at CFRA.com if you want to get a hold of me. Beyond the news at CFRA.com. And I do try and read them if, even if I don't respond. Uh, Facebook, it's facebook.com slash Brian Lilly, and on the Twitter machine, twitter.com slash Brian Lilly. Well, on the 26th, is it? Yeah, Thursday the 26th, we're going to be raising an awful lot of money for the Briere Continuing Care and uh, Briere Healthcare in general. And Barb Farrell joins me now. She's a pharmacist at the Briere Geriatric Day Hospital and clinical and research 
coordinator at the pharmacy department at Briere. Uh, welcome. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Brian. Uh, you're part of a program that is attempting to do what doctors and pharmacists and you know care providers struggle with, which is too, people taking too many medications. Uh, I want you to tell me a little bit about this, and then I want to hear about how uh, the program here is being studied by American health reps because they're saying, hey, wait a minute, you guys have something. So let's let's talk about the problem first. How does the problem of overprescribing medication begin? Well, it's it's a fairly complex problem. Uh, one of the challenges is that many clinical guidelines talk about when to start medications, but they almost never talk about when to stop medications. So we um, we've been working um, on developing guidelines that would help uh, clinicians make decisions about when it's appropriate to reduce the dose of a medication or stop a medication when it's perhaps no longer needed or when the risk of side effects might outweigh the benefit. And that's really important, particularly for the elderly, because as people get older, they have an increased risk of side effects. When we're talking about medications that we might take for an infection, like penicillin, it's here's a three-week dose, make sure you take all three weeks. But when it's a long-term problem, and I can think of you know medications that I've been prescribed and I've just stopped taking them, maybe my doctor's happy with me, maybe not. But you're right, there isn't a, you should take this until. It's just here, take this, keep taking it. Right, because I think the assumption has been for some medications that you need to take them forever. Um, but if we take blood pressure medications, for example, it's, it's pretty important to keep your blood pressure low uh, to minimize the risk of a heart attack or a stroke. But as you get older into your 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, your body becomes more sensitive to the side effects of those medications. And we also don't know for sure in the very elderly whether we should be keeping their blood pressure as low as we should for younger people. So we need to be thinking about, and this is just one class of drugs as an example, about when it might be appropriate to reduce the doses or stop those medications. Speaking with Barb Farrell, pharmacist with Briere Geriatric Day Hospital, and part of, you're part of a de-prescribing guidelines project. Mm-hmm. So the American health officials recently came up. Tell me a bit about that. Why did they decide to, to study what you and your colleagues at Briere are doing? Yeah, so we've had a lot of international interest growing over the last three years of this project. And in April, we had a three-day site visits from representatives of the Commonwealth Fund and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement in the U.S., and as well as several innovator networks, uh, healthcare professional organizations that they work with. And they uh, identified this project from, I think there were a little over 100 applications of different innovations made to um, um, a bit of a, a There have been a competition were, or to look at. A bit to of a competition to, to look at innovations outside the U.S. that would be applicable uh, in the United States. And so they came for this uh, three-day visit, having selected us as one of four priority projects from those applications. And they're going to go back now and uh, produce a report that a number of their innovator healthcare organizations in the U.S. will look at in terms of uh, applicability of the de-prescribing guidelines in the U.S. All right. This is the type of research, the type of work that you support when you support Briere, And of course, we're partners. We're shamelessly promoting this because of the Radiothon next week, and uh, I won't be around for it, unfortunately, but I'll be in Vancouver. But make, I'll be donating, so you should all be making sure that you're ready to donate as well. So 
the U.S., this could, your work that the people of Ottawa have been supporting uh, could then lead to better care, not just here, but, you know, across the continent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's definitely potential for that happening. And the problem of polypharmacy has really been growing internationally. Uh, people are concerned about the numbers of medications that might contribute to fall risk or cognitive impairment um, to emergency room visits and drug-related hospitalizations. So people are really looking for guidance about which medications they should reduce or which medications they should potentially uh, discuss stopping uh, with patients. And you're the pharmacist. Sometimes, from what I hear, and, and I'm talking about people that are outside of what you're doing as well, sometimes it's the pharmacist that's the first one to catch that, well, your GPs prescribed this, and your specialists provide, prescribed that. Then you went to the dentist and you got this. Uh, well, hold on. There's a problem here. So that's the important role of pharmacist in, in helping manage our care. Not, yeah. not just for the elderly, not just for geriatric, but for everyone. Right. So ideally, you know, if you're going to one pharmacy, that pharmacist has that complete list of, of all the medications you're taking, as well as knowledge of what over-the-counter medications you might be using as well. Uh, and they can certainly share that with the primary care provider and collaborate around which medications could potentially uh, be reduced. All right. Barb Farrell, thanks so much. Thank you for having Barb me. Barb Farrell is the pharmacist at the Briere Geriatric Day Hospital. Just uh, some of the good work that you are supporting, a deprescribing guidelines project now being studied by health researchers and uh, health practitioners in the United States. Of course, the Radiothon is next week. Make sure you have your checkbook ready. Make sure you got your credit card ready. Or I, I was just looking for it. I, I think Barb probably thought I was being rude. I was looking at the Twitter machine saying, I know they tweeted it out somewhere. There's a number you can text, and one day... I'll figure out how to do that. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. In a world gone mad, there must be resistance. You're listening to Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. You might have noticed something about me. I'm not a fan of Hillary Clinton. And so while most in the media in this country and elsewhere will just go on and on and on about Donald Trump, how he's not fit to be president, they won't say too much about Hillary because, well... They love Hillary. Hillary's one of them. Hillary's a progressive. Hillary is wonderful. I happen to think she's a criminal that should be in jail. I don't know if our next guest thinks that Hillary belongs in jail, but we'll find out. But by the way, Charles Ortel is the person joining. He's a financial analyst, a Wall Street uh, man that knows the ins and outs of numbers. But Charles, I think Hillary Clinton should be in jail for uh, what happened with Benghazi, her email, and other issues. If you think she should be in jail, it might have something to do with the charitable foundation that uh, that you say is a fraud. Yeah, well, thanks, Brian, for having me on again. Uh, I would say that uh, this is a big story because it's much bigger than being an American story. It's also a Canadian story. What happened, Brian, is about a year ago, I uh, began the process of trying to develop, uh, lay the groundwork for a new business where I'm going to help people who believe the North American experience is an exceptional one that we should treasure, who want to protect their wealth and build it, and who care about philanthropy. 
I hadn't done enough work on you know how philanthropies, particularly global ones, report. So I picked the Clinton Foundation in part because it's complicated, in part in part because that's exactly what I did in 2007-8 with GE. I picked a very complicated company I thought was probably going to be well run, and discovered to my shock and horror that it wasn't. I'll save you 15 months' work by saying there is no question in my mind that under Canadian, U.S., and foreign laws, let alone state laws, this is the largest unprosecuted charity fraud in history. Why? The, the first, first of all, it's never been audited. Now, you have to uh, submit a compliant audit. And in our country, it might be different than Canada. There are different requirements depending on what state you're in. And the Arkansas requirements are lax, but the New York State requirements are very strict. So you can't. And, and where are they based? The well, Clinton based, Foundation. Technically, the the uh, they were organized in Arkansas, but then they have illegally formed satellite operations all over the place. Some are consolidated, some aren't consolidated. None are consistently accounted for, and in no year have they ever gotten a compliant, a fully compliant audit for any part of this foundation. So the first issue is you don't know how much money this thing has actually gotten. Now, this is a problem for Canada because, among other things, uh, the government of Canada has sent money towards the Clinton Foundation. And they've also granted special status, haven't they? Well, yes. The, the, the Clinton Foundation, it is rare for a foreign-based charity to be given charitable status in Canada, but the Clinton Foundation is one of the few that's been granted that, correct? I think that's true, and actually, they they have a joint venture operation with a man named Frank Juster up in, I think, British Columbia in Vancouver. And that's a special set of problems, because when this joint venture was set up, at the time it was set up, the Clinton Foundation itself was illegally constituted inside the U.S. So I don't know how Canada law works, but in American law, you can't, you know, you can't enter into a joint venture uh, with an entity that is unlawfully constituted. Secondly, the Canadian joint venture um, assigned or entered into an agency agreement, which it does not disclose on its website and which the Clintons did not disclose down here, that purports to transfer authority to operate this, op this entity to the Clinton Foundation here in America. The people involved with that are based in New York, and that partnership is not registered in New York, which is an offense under New York law. Then um, it's unclear how they raise money for that foundation in Canada and here, and then that partnership operates in, I believe, eight countries. So in every one of those operations are uh, illegal. So, so w I mean, are, are you saying that they just haven't done uh, the right paperwork or that they're not doing the right things with the money at the Bill and Hillary Clinton Foundation? I'm saying both. In the beginning, in the way our law works, uh, and I've taught consulted experts on this, the way our law works is you have to pick to be a federally tax-exempt nonprofit, you have to restrict your purposes to specifically defined purposes. In the case of the Clinton Foundation, those purposes originally were to be an archive and research facility in Little Rock, Arkansas, period. That's what they were approved to do. Anything else, the way our law works, you have to, you have to go to the IRS, particularly if it's a radically different pursuit. So from going to be an archive covering the president's papers, which is interesting, uh, to being an entity that might fight HIV-AIDS around the world, uh, that's a very different purpose. And you have to go to our IRS first and explain why you're changing your purpose, prove that you can follow the purpose. Then you go about raising money. 
The offenses here include, uh, in my view, uh, illegal fundraising and illegal operations. And what I've done, having spent 15 months on it, I've written a lot already. My site is www.charlesortel.com. The reports are free. Um, and I'm about to release a chronological set of exhibits, 40 exhibits, just covering the period from inception on October 23, 1997, through the, the report for the calendar year ended December 31, 2010. And the reason I'm doing this is because the Clinton Foundation, uh, through its agents uh, and itself, through the president, in the name of the trustees, on November 16, 2015, attempted to correct the record and made the false claims that they had. And, and I'm just documenting that, you know, through 2010, they certainly did not fix the problem. And if it's not fixed as of 2010, after the refiling, clearly all other filings are also false and materially misleading. Yet they are still fundraising while we're having this interview. Okay, and I want to get into some of the, the back and forth um, between Hillary Clinton using her position at state, the large donations from foreign countries, and then, you know, bill speaking fees, all of that. But you mentioned the Clinton-Justra Enterprise Partnership, which right. is a charitable organization in Canada. And I just did a, look them up on Canada Revenue Agency. You can look up any charity and see how they raise their money and what they do with it. Back in 2010, they were giving away about half of their money to other charities. And expenses were about 4%. That's in 2010. You go to 2011, and it becomes... 91% of their $5.1 million went to charity. 9% was management and administration. That's not a bad ratio. Next year, 90% to 10%. But then you get into 2013. And Charles, in 2013, they, uh, they had total expenses of $1.1 million. 72% of it was management and administration. 28% was charitable work. Right. Uh, 2014. And it becomes uh, even different. It's 78% management and administration. That, that's an odd setup for any charity. Right. And again, you do, I don't know if those books are actually audited and what the auditing standards are in Canada, but I can tell you that all the numbers in the Clinton Foundation filings, because I've checked every one of them, and I've checked every audit, the audits are not compliant. You can't audit a company that's been around for a while and, and not audit its opening balance sheet. You're just not allowed to do that. Okay, let let me ask you about um, some of the the allegations leveled at Hillary Clinton that uh, and, and Bill that they used the foundation to enrich themselves. They used Hillary's position as Secretary of State to bring in large amounts of foreign money. Do you put any stock in that? That, that well, this uh, is essentially buying the Secretary of State's position, buying influence with her presidential campaign. There's no doubt in my mind. But guess what? Under U.S. law, you don't have to prove any of that to prove charity fraud. Let me give you uh, an, a specific case in point. Last week, the uh, Wall Street Journal wrote a story that got a lot of attention about how a $2 million investment may have been arranged using a portion of the Clinton Foundation, um, which is is not allowed, actually. Just A, a, a donation to, to what, a super PAC or to the foundation? No, that... that uh, that uh, people connected to the Clintons used uh, a Clinton Global Initiative, the annual gathering, and they now have more than just an annual gathering here in New York, to arrange for an investment to be made in a, connected, a company connected to people close to the Clintons. 
You're not allowed to do that in a charity. A charity is not a fundraising exercise for private companies. Um, but that's a small, it's a, it's a, a question, highly questionable, suspicious transaction. Let me tell you about a much bigger one. There's a company called Laureate Education, which is a for-profit university and school system, now global. This was created in a leveraged buyout in 2006 and 7 down here. And it operates all over the place. I don't know. I think they may have schools in Canada. I have to check that. But down here, we people, even, even the Obama administration, with whom I d- disagree on many things, even they are doing their best to curb abuses at these for-profit schools. Because why would you go to a for-profit school? There are many, many good public universities. Why would you, why would you allow the school you're going to to make a profit off you? Uh, and why would you take out the loans to go through such a program? It's highly suspicious. Anyway, this buyout was completed before the credit crisis, and then it, it had trouble in the credit crisis. So they decided to put a you know put a nice put some lipstick on it, and they hired Bill Clinton to be chancellor of this thing. <laughs> and they paid so Bill Clinton. It's like Clinton University instead of Trump University, which well, was an election you, issue a little while ago. Well, wait do you hear this. Trump didn't pay himself $16.5 million and hide it from the public, but the Clintons did. They received $16.5 million, according to uh, disclosures that are in the public domain, that came out in 2015. In January of 2013, as Hillary was le- leaving as Secretary of State, uh, the world, a portion of the World Bank, the International Finance Corporation, made the decision to make the largest equity investment it had ever made in Laureate purchasing $150 million worth of common stock in Laureate. Why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. And then on top of which, uh, the CEO of the system, Laureate, is, a, is involved in a joint venture with the Clinton Foundation. That's not disclosed adequately in the financials. He, a charity he cares about has received money from the U.S. government. That's not disclosed. None of these things are in the financials, and there, they there, need to be. There's an awful lot of things that seem to be going on that are about one thing and one thing only, and that is making Bill and Hillary Clinton a lot richer. Is that essentially what this is about? I mean, it's called a foundation. It's called the Clinton Global Initiative. It's supposed to be about all these good works. But at the end of the day, isn't this about paying for that nice house in New York State and the travel all over the place. And, and I'm, I'm guessing that they've got a nice apartment, apartment in Manhattan, Charles. I have no idea about that. Well, Chelsea does, but I, I don't know if they do. But the point here is, under our laws, which are actually modeled off U.K. law, and I suspect are similar to yours, it is strictly illegal to operate a charity, a public charity, that solicits money as we speak, using the telephone, using the uh, digital media, et cetera, using the mails. It is strictly illegal to do that and, and in, uh, in the, as a charity when, in fact, what you're doing is, is enriching, creating what is called a private gain. And it's even worse if the insiders, i.e. the Clintons and others, are appropriating that private gain. That is a crime called inurement. And it's, it, it is just bright line illegal. And the way you get around enormment is in part having financial statements that are impossible to penetrate. Now, unfortunately, uh, I was able to get copies of the real financial statements that the Clinton Foundation produces that are not the ones that are on their website, but are ones that they have filed in various states. And the, when I look at this and when I have my experts look at it, they come back and they say, the question here isn't whether it's a fraud. The question here is why government authorities in your country, in Vancouver, and in British Columbia, 
uh, in, through across our states, in our country, and around the world, why aren't government authorities doing something? At a minimum, they should force this charity to cease fundraising another penny until they produce audited financial statements going right back to the beginning in requirement with various laws. At a minimum, they should do that. At a maximum, they should replace the board and prosecute the people who have been committing this charity fraud to the fullest extent of the law with no mercy. Charles, I'm assuming that you've read the the book that came out about uh, a year ago on uh, by uh, Peter Schweitzer called Clinton Cash. Have you? I was with Peter last week. Okay, at the uh, movie. That so, have you seen a copy of this movie yet? I was at the movie at the screening. Yes, at the screening. Cool. Okay, because I'm reading reports uh, from media that are sympathetic to the Clintons and to the Democrats, and they're describing this as very damaging. When, uh, when it describes how they have used all of these different systems to enrich themselves. Well, I just got off the phone with an a, a excellent person now living in America who's been dogging the Haitian side of this. And, you know, if you just think about it for a second, here we have these two very well-educated, powerful people deciding that they can run this country and indeed run the world. And look at what happened in Haiti. In Haiti... 12 to $13 billion supposedly went towards Haiti under the care of Bill Clinton outside the foundation and then a smaller pocket inside the foundation. Bill refuses to this day to account with his co-chair for any of that money. No one knows what happened to that money. That's a large amount of money in relation to the roughly $10, million or, $10 billion or so GDP, roughly, of that country. I mean, that's a massive amount of money. If they can't even fix Haiti, and they were actually running that country... How in God's earth do we expect them, uh, you know, to do anything they say they're doing uh, going forward with America? And why do they get a pass? I mean, that's an awful lot of money. Twelve to $13 billion was put into Bill's care. And we, you, your government, people in Canada sent money down there. People around the world sent money yep. down there. I mean, well, it was heartbreaking to watch. Of course, people chipped in and wanted to help. And, and in the end, I'm not sure Haiti is... Uh, is doing as well as it should be. I'll say it's better off than after the quake, obviously, but uh, it's not doing as well as it should be. Charles, uh, we are well out of time, but uh, thanks for, for taking some time with us today. CharlesOrtel.com, if you want to read up on these. He's uh, a, a Wall Street guru, financial analyst, and someone that uh, won't stop digging into the Clintons. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back with final thoughts in moments. Some days, the resistance verges on rebellion. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. Make sure that... uh Make sure that you're checking out the Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash Brian Lilly, and Twitter is twitter.com slash Brian Lilly. If you like what we talk about here on the program, then make sure that you're spreading it. Make sure that you are sharing it. That's the important thing, especially on Facebook. If you really want other people to see something, if you spot a story and you're like, well, yeah, other Canadians need to know about this, then don't click like, click share. You, you will spread it to far more people. Podcast of the show will be up later today. Make sure that you share that. Also got uh, stories up on the conservative leadership race, 
got uh, stories up on, on the 62 official languages up on the Facebook page right now. I don't think a lot of people know about that. I don't think that's being spread far and wide. I think that Canadians need to know about it. The Sophie story obviously broke through, and Catherine's calling in about that. We'll give uh, last word to you, Catherine. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, Brian, is it? Yep. Okay, Brian. Yes, I just have a few comments that I'd like to make. I know you're almost out of time. First of all, I think it's very extremely, extremely disrespectful to be referring to our Prime Minister's wife as Sophie. Uh, think, that's how, that's all, how she I refers think, to herself, me, just like he refers me. to himself okay. as Justin. I'm giving, okay, let's put Catherine on hold. Sophie calls herself Sophie. Justin calls himself okay, Justin. Why That's should we fine. not call her that? That's fine. That's fine. But I'm telling you my opinion, okay? Am I allowed to give my opinion? I think it's very disrespectful to be throwing her name around as Sophie, regardless of how she addresses herself. I think at least at some point when you're discussing earlier today, you could have said Madame uh, Gregoire Trudeau, because she is the wife well, of the I, Prime I Minister. Well, I do speak That's French, not one. English, now, so it wouldn't be Madame. Well, you're interrupting me again. I don't think that's polite. Secondly, my other point is, I do agree that she does need a staff. I'm not saying how many, but she not, is not obviously the first lady. We don't have what is called a first lady, but we do have the wife of the prime minister. Do, so can you tell me how many as, staff she has? I believe right now she has two. She has ten. She has a staff of ten right now? I don't think so. She she has a full housekeeping crew, two nannies, two housekeepers, a household manager, a chef, a driver, groundskeeper, uh, security detail. I'm Brian Lilly, out of time.